Hello and welcome to the Kick in the Creatives podcast, hosted by myself, Sandra Busby, and my fellow creative, Tara Roskell, offering you interviews, inspiration, motivation, and a gentle prod in the right direction. And for lots more information, challenges, and other useful tools to help you get creating, you can go to www.kickinthecreatives.com. And of course, this is where you can also find today's show notes. Enjoy the show. Our guest today is multi-award winning illustrator and writer Chris Riddell. Chris trained under Raymond Briggs, creator of The Snowman, but went on to develop his own characterful and instantly recognisable drawing style. He's also a political cartoonist for The Observer and was also Waterstone's Children's Laureate. Now, we've been wanting to interview Chris since we started this podcast, and he does not disappoint. And if you listen carefully, I'm sure he was scribbling away with his pencil as we were chatting. Enjoy the interview. Well, thank you very much for joining us. Um, And we'd first of all love to know, when did your love for drawing begin? I think... It was one of my earliest memories, um, and so I couldn't tell you exactly what age I, I was, but but old enough to sort of have this as a memory, I suppose three, three and a half, four. Mm. Um, and I remember having a um, a pack of Crayola crayons, those big wax crayons, big big thick crayons, um, and uh, I distinctly remember having a lovely time scribbling on the wallpaper in my dad's study. <laughs> Um, and uh, and then getting into trouble, and this is why I think it's stuck in my memory. Getting into awful trouble when uh, you know I was discovered by my parents, and uh, ever since then, you know, I've I've been drawn, pun intended, towards <laughs> walls to to, to draw on, um, but also um, I've always loved drawing as an activity. And my my mother went out and got a huge pack of paper. Uh, around about that time and and ever since then I've always had sort of paper and materials to to draw on and with. So you were taught by Raymond Briggs who illustrated The Snowman and although it was an influence to you you went on you developed your own unique style so was that difficult or was it just a case of learning the basics and then putting in the time and the practice? Well it's again um, it's an interesting sort of question in some senses, because um, I don't think um, artists really should go out and search for a style, as it were. I I think we should be open to as many influences um, as possible. Um, And we shouldn't be afraid, I think, to to sort of copy works of art that we admire, to, to, you know, decode them and find out sort of how how they're made. Um, And certainly with Raymond, I mean, he taught me almost sort of by example in a sense. You know, he wrote his own material. He uh, shared the work that he was doing with us as students. And uh, all of us just thought we want to be like Raymond. We want to live that sort of artistic life, the life that he was leading. Um, And so um, I think I, I sort of followed Raymond's example in a sense. I tried to work in the way that he worked. Uh, not in terms of copying his style, but very much in terms of sort of coming up with original work myself and trying to keep myself busy. And I've always drawn. So um, drawing to me is is, is a, a natural activity. And I think the more one does anything, I suppose the more proficient one, one becomes at it. 
So there's this common belief, isn't there, that artists are kind of born with this talent. So what are your thoughts on that? And what would you say to people who think they actually can't draw? I think talent, you know, is one of those things that, you know, certainly is a great building block. You know, if it, it, I, my mother sort of tells me that I was always a sort of um, a very observant child. You know, I used to not talk very much, but look at things. And that's something I've noticed in my own daughter, you know, that, that she, as a young child, always looked at things carefully, sort of observed. Um, and Katie now is, a, is, is an artist. Um, and so there must be something uh, about the way that uh, one responds to things visually that, that sets you apart as an artist. But I think the, the fundamental um, sort of building block after that is, is practice is to actually get on and, and do things. And I think drawing can be um, taught as a skill, just as learning to play the violin is taught. But I think with drawing, um, it's something I would encourage everyone to do because it is a sort of mindful activity, um, looking at something, observing it, and then committing sort of marks to paper, I think, uh, make you look at the world around you in, in a in a very sort of particular and, and uh, I think, enjoyable way. I think one of the things that people find really tricky, even if they can draw, is actually drawing out their imagination, which you can draw really, really well with that. Uh, a lot of people really need reference. So do you think that is a skill that can be learned? I mean, or do you have any tips for doing that? I do. I do have a tip. Um, uh, I would say, um, you know, choose uh, a subject um for instance uh you know uh, an ice cream van and draw an ice cream van uh from your imagination um then once you've done that put that drawing to one side and go and find some reference for an ice cream van and draw it from reference and then put that drawing to one side and draw an ice cream van again and what you'll have is this melding of two things the the sort of you know imagined and the observed uh and you produce a drawing from your visual memory and that's a great way of freeing up this this imaginative side so that you uh i think you'll find if you go through that process that the third drawing you do um becomes much more imaginative um, and yet it's, it'll also be informed by, by what you've just been looking at. So um, it's, it's, it's a nice sort of thing to do for students because um, it certainly gets them filling up their sketchbooks, which I'm a great advocate for. Um, and as I said, it, it, it's, a, it's a nice sort of process for freeing up your imagination. So do you think you end up building up this sort of bank of reference in your head by doing that? I think you do. I think you do. I mean, for instance, I was taught by um, a school friend um, at primary school to draw an ear. Someone had shown him how to draw an anatomically correct ear. And he, he taught me. And it's very simple. It, it's, it's about sort of four or five lines. Um, but it's the way they connect up. You can draw the human ear. And once you learn to do that, then you can draw all ears known to man and 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 or then move on to sort of animals ears you know the, the ears of a mouse or a rabbit or they all have a, um, things in common and so you can learn techniques and as a cartoonist um my great failing i think is that i slip into tram lines a little too easily 
and I tend to, um, you know, draw something in a certain way, and that becomes my way of drawing forever. Um, and what I try to do every so often is interrupt that and go, no, now I'm going to go and draw a real thing now in order to really observe as opposed to use my what I think things look like. I'm interested to know, actually, obviously you draw as a job. So do you also draw to relax then? Uh, yes, I do. <laughs> so after a, a long day in the studio drawing things, um, I like to sit down with a sketchbook while I'm relaxing and draw things. Um, so I'm never quite sure when I'm working and when I'm not working. <laughs> Is it very um, different? Are the drawings very different? or They are. They are because, you know, working for a commission, one is, is, is told what is required. I mean, for instance, I've just been doing a cover for the Literary Review magazine, um, mm. and I've been drawing Tom Stoppard. And I wouldn't attempt to draw Tom Stoppard from my imagination, so I've been sitting doing a, a sort of portrait of, of Tom. Uh, but when I sort of sit down and relax with my sketchbook, it is just really filling up a page. Um, so it becomes, uh, I never sort of sit down and decide what I'm going to draw. I just start in, in one corner and see where things end up. So it becomes a sort of meditation, but it also, I think, can be very revealing, which is why I say to people, um, you know, that their sketchbooks are a private space. They don't have to show their sketchbooks to people. Um, a little bit like keeping a diary. If you imagine your diary is going to be sort of read out aloud to a sort of crowded room, uh, you would write that diary in a very different way. Um, whereas if you're just writing for yourself and as a personal sort of uh, memory of things, um, I think it's it's you can be much more revealing. So my sketchbooks tend to be just things for myself. I find myself drawing endless fish or strange floating islands or sort of fairy tale princesses with long flowing hair. And I don't stop myself if I find myself the umpteenth time drawing the same sort of thing. Um, I don't mind because it's just my own meditation and for my own enjoyment. And you recommend, don't you, keeping a secret sketchbook? Is that what you mean by that? Is is it um... is it is very much so. Hmm. Um, and I think it's this thing about um, being able to express yourself visually and not worrying too much about sort of who's going to see it and, and analyze it in a way. And it, that's a very different process from, as I say, doing doing sort of public commissions where the whole idea is it it'll be published and people will, will see it. Uh, and I, in sketchbooks, you never make mistakes. You know, I, I think, um, you know, any drawing can go wrong at any time. And in a sketchbook, you own that mistake and you can just work around it. So um, a lot of the drawings in my sketchbooks start out as one thing and turn into something else just simply because, you know, I've drawn a, a wonky limb or a, a, a sort of incredible perspective that doesn't quite work, and then it becomes something else. Um, and so, I, and again, that's a, that's a nice technique, not to edit yourself as you draw, but to allow the mistakes to, to take shape and take ownership of them. That's actually something I find quite daunting, because my sketchbooks tend to be all over the place and there might be a good sketch in there and then there'll be a few terrible ones. Unlike when you see these sketchbook flick throughs where they're just all beautiful. 
So, I mean, I'm guessing yours all look beautiful, so you don't have that issue. <laughs> I don't know, you see, because I think if one goes through sketchbooks, they, as I say, they can be very revealing. And so you can look at things thinking, I mean, I always say to, to um, you know, kids when I, I, I talk in schools and things that, you know, anyone can look in my sketchbook as long as they're not a trained psychiatrist. <laughs> I really don't want to know what my obsession, what, what I'm revealing through these drawings. Have you ever thought about writing a tutorial book on the illustration process? And we're asking that because we both want one. We want one. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that, that's an interesting one. I, I have had thoughts from time to time about that. Um, and I think what I would like to do, I think, is write about creativity and how not to block yourself when when you're sort of on this this sort of creative journey um because being self-critical i think is a very useful part of the creative process but to be too self-critical blocks you as an artist and i think uh, you've got to sort of find your way through that and I think sketchbooks are one way to do that because you are almost, you know, it's a private space. Um, the other way to do that, oddly, is is to show people what you're doing. So you've got these two sort of sides to it that seem sort of counterintuitive. But, um, you know, in the process of displaying what you're doing and showing it, that can free you up to not uh, worry too much about your technique. Um, so I think... Um, you know, it's how you negotiate that path. Um, and at some point, I think you need valued criticism. You need someone to come along and, and sort of, you know, advise you and, and, and help you uh, on that journey as well. So there are lots of things that, that one, um, one thinks about when you're thinking about creativity. And if I was going to, you know, give this as yet unwritten book a name, um, I would call it something like um, things I wish I'd known when I was your age. Mm, great title, yeah. So for the very young. What made you decide to write your own children's stories? Because you used to illustrate, didn't you? And obviously you now illustrate your own books. Well, that, that goes back to Raymond again. Um, uh, Raymond was, a, a, again, a, a great role model. In, in terms of producing his own work. Um, and Raymond was a very successful illustrator um, in the 50s and 60s, and then started to write his own work. And that's a trajectory I've certainly followed. Um, I'm, I'm not a writer um, as such. Um, I'm an illustrator through and through. Um, and I love responding to words in in book form. Um, but when I run out of things to illustrate, you know, if someone hasn't commissioned me to, to illustrate their book, uh, that's when I turn to writing and write my own in order to, to do the pictures. And so all the projects I've done have tended to be sort of job creation schemes where if no one asks me to, to do a book about flying horses, I'll write one myself so I can draw those flying horses. So how do you feel about the writing process? Do you enjoy that as much as the drawings? No. No, I don't. It's hard. Very hard. Um, I, uh, I keep a sort of daily journal. Um, you know, when I wake up, I'll, I'll, I'll write down. And it's very much a work journal. So, so uh, again, it's about mindfulness and thinking about the processes one goes through. So it, it's the most boring document imaginable. 
Um, I've often said to my kids, you know, you're welcome to flick through my diary and read read it if you want. And they say, no, Dad, it's so dull. <laughs> um, it really just is about that watercolour I did yesterday and the reference I'm seeking and finding out, you know, and uh, how long it took me to do this and that. You know, it, it, it's not a, uh, as uh, revealing, I would say, as, as my sketchbooks might be. Um, but what it does is it, it, it again, frees you up to express things um, through language, but writing is so difficult. And I know this because I've worked with some great writers. And when you read Neil Gaiman's work, you realize what a authentic writer's voice can be and, and what a sort of great storyteller Neil is. Um, and I don't have any of those pretensions at all. I mean, as I say, I'm, I'm writing just so I can do the pictures. So do you base your stories around the characters you create or do you create the characters and then, you know, use a story about them? Well, my process is is to um, start visually. Um, Mm. And this is why I've enjoyed working in what is now called middle grade fiction. I don't know what it was called when I started doing it um, sort of quite a few years ago now, but... um, a lot of my colleagues were working in picture books. And when I started to sort of do middle grade fiction, they said to me, why, why are you doing that? Because you get paid, you know, half of what you're paid to do a picture book. And yet you have to do all this writing as well and all these pictures. And mm. my feeling was that it's a f- lovely form because you get to expand the story visually. So you get to sort of see your characters walk through the pages of the book in a much more rounded way than than possibly a 32-page picture book might give you. And I love picture books as a form, but they're they're very much the haiku, whereas the middle grade fiction, I think, is is the sort of longer longer sort of um, poem form, I think. And um, I've always loved that. So so my process, I think, is is to thumbnail, you know, do little um, frames of the entire book, however long it might be, um, uh, plan that out very sort of deliberately in terms of sort of how many chapters I would like. So when I start a story, I'm not thinking about the subject matter. I'm thinking about how many pages I'd like and how many chapter divisions there might be within that and whether I'll have some double page spreads of, of drawings going in. And then I start to draw my cast. So it's almost like having a sort of, you know, a casting call for a play or a uh, a film where where I draw characters that I would like to include in the story. And as I draw them, I imagine who they might be and how they might work. So when I was working on um, uh, Ottoline, the the first Ottoline book, um, I drew Ottoline and Mr. Monroe first. Uh, without knowing who they were or what they were or where they might live and constructed a story around the drawings. Um, You know, the relationship the two of them might have with each other, um, where they might live, um, where Ottoline's parents were, you know, that sort of thing, and and, and built it from that. And the second thing I did was I decided I wanted 10 chapters. Um, And that 10 chapters all of equal number of pages. And then I did a little visual story, almost like a silent movie, where I drew what they were doing. And sometimes I drew things that I wasn't quite sure, you know, where they might fit in the story. You know, Ottoline walking down a street or Mr. Munro looking at a lamppost. And from those markers, I started to write the text. Um, and so the, 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 my words grew round the pictures. 
And I think that's what illustrators are sort of uniquely um, able to do, a little bit like sort of graphic novelists in a sense. We can create a world and then bring in language and bring the uh, description, descriptive parts, uh, you know, in, in, in the prose into this sort of visual world that we've created. Um, and it's also a, a great way to avoid sort of writer's block in a way, because when you get to a certain point and you are struggling with with how a character might act or or what they might do, um, I, at that point, draw a picture on my manuscript. So my manuscript's all handwritten with lots of doodles and drawings and ideas for, for sort of designs uh, incorporated into them, which is why I tend to get a rather sort of wearying look from my editor as I come in with my, with my manuscript because they have to then sit and transcribe it. <laughs> so there's a lot of eye rolling going on then. <laughs> oh, an awful lot of that, and, and, and you know, sort of, you don't have spell checks when you're writing it all that out by hand. So my spelling mm. is Shakespearean, I would say. Would you? Were you one of these children at school that used to get told off for drawing in your margins? I, I did. I did get told off for that, and worse than that, um, uh, at my school we were. It was one of these strange rules. I'm never sh- quite sure why this was the case, but we had to cover our exercise books with um, brown paper. I don't oh. know why. Just, just one of those things. So yeah, we, we used did. to have to do that. Yeah. I don't know. Who knows why? Where that came from? But anyway, these perfectly respectable exercise books had to be covered in brown paper, and I couldn't resist the brown paper. I love drawing on it, mm. and so I used to get into trouble for decorating my exercise books with drawings all over. And they would say, "You know, Riddell, you're never going to get anywhere doing that." Oh, um, how wrong were they? <laughs> <laughs> I've been doodling ever since on on things I shouldn't. I just wanted to go back when you said um, how you started planning your book and you, you just started drawing these characters, you didn't quite know who they were going to be. Would you ever take a sketch that you'd come up with in your sketchbook and that becomes one of your stories? Yes, all the time. Um, but, but more than that, what I try to do is uh, lay little traps um, for unsuspecting writers out there, um, almost like scattering breadcrumbs. Um, and social media is a great place to do this where I will do a picture um, uh, and call it uh, an illustration in search of a story and leave it out there to, for, for unsuspecting writers to see. And, and and if they like what they see, then I encourage them to write stories for me, you see, based around the... Um, so a long-standing project that Neil Gaiman and I might never get round to is um, to reverse the whole process, a little bit like my writing process. And to produce a book of illustrations first, round which Neil then has to write his story. Um, oh, cool idea. Which would I, be thought you were, I thought you were going to say you're going to put it out to everybody so you've got loads of different stories coming through, all are based yeah, on illustrations. Book. Yes, wouldn't that be fun? Um, yeah. uh, I once saw on the most extraordinary um, uh, novel, um, it was uh, in Australia, and someone had found um, the old... Uh, etchings that the great uh, illustrator Gustav Doré had done in the 19th century um, to Don Quixote, which is a huge and labyrinthine um, novel. Um, and Doré had done many, many illustrations to it. Um, and the novelist had just taken these illustrations as illustrations for the story he wanted to write. And so he wrote a story completely different from the, the, the 
um, Don Quixote, but using the illustrations Doria had done in the book. And, and it was wonderful because you went in a completely different direction with essentially the same illustrations. So clever. So, so do you ever base any of your characters that you come up with on people that you know? I'm afraid so. Um, <laughs> uh, do I, they know? I'm not proud of myself, but I just couldn't <laughs> resist. Um, some do and some don't, you see, because it's 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 a way sometimes of, um, you know, being flattering. Um, I'm told that many of my child characters look like my, my children, which I suppose they're the children I see most growing up. So they've tended to, uh, you know, appear in my books. My son, uh, Will, as a little boy, was in quite a few of my books. Um, uh I wrote Ottilie and Goth Girl essentially for my daughter Katie when she was at that age, uh, sort of between sort of nine and ten and wanting to sort of, you know, uh, wanting to find sort of material she would enjoy. So so they began as books I wrote for her. Um, but then, of course, I with Goth Girl, uh, it's peppered with characters, um, some intentional, some not intentionally, based on people I know, who looks like my friend Sylvia. And I didn't realise until the book was actually published and someone sent, said, uh, you've drawn Sylvia. And I suddenly realised I had. Um, luckily, it was flattering, I've got to say, because the 300-year-old <laughs> friend was very glamorous, but, but it could have gone badly wrong. Um, I've also included, um, you know, various people that I've met in my professional life uh, in uh, certainly the Goth Girl books. Um, and I'm afraid I can't confess to who they might be, but they are a number of sort of um, artists and illustrators who, who appear in, uh, in those mm. books. And I felt I had to sort of set the record straight, so I drew myself uh, an alter ego of myself in in the uh, one of the goth girl books. I'm Sir Christopher Riddle of the Sphinx, RA, um, a canine um, caricaturist, uh, and I work for the um, the Hare and Hounds, which is a literary dog salon. <laughs> <laughs> and was it flattering? No, I felt it would be unfair to flatter <laughs> myself. It, it would be too transparent. So, uh, so no, it's not flattering at all. Although Lord Goth, who is the main character in that, is um, looks like my friend Lee, uh, and and that's that's very flattering in a sort of Byronic way. I've got one of your books. Um where you're traveling it's like your travel sketchbook almost and you're in that a lot and I love it I absolutely love that book well I would say that that's another thing that 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 drawing can do um it can be sort of confessional and you you can sort Mm. of create your own avatar in a sense and draw yourself and it can be very helpful sometimes when you've done something particularly stupid uh, to draw yourself. Um, and, and, and in drawing yourself, you sort of feel better about whatever faux pas you might have made. Um, I remember being at the Hay Festival a couple of years ago and greeting um, Simon Armitage, who had just become Poet Laureate. And Simon was queuing up to get a cup of tea and I went over and I, I've known Simon for a number of years and it was you know fun to, to see him again and I came up and he was with his wife who I'd met at Hay a few years before that and I came up and said Simon so lovely to see you and congratulations on becoming Poet Laureate and I turned to his wife and I said um, lovely to see you again we met um, you know a few years ago and Simon turned to me and said that's not my wife 
and then he nodded over to the other sort of side of the sort of uh, the green room and there was his wife observing us <laughs> uh, there's no coming back from that you know i, I just felt but did she look the same that's the question did she i would like same? to say yes but but i'm afraid <laughs> no it was, I was terrible it's just as well you didn't just as well you didn't say wow you're looking really well these days <laughs> so wrong couldn't it even worth it actually it really but what yeah. i did then was i yeah. took myself back to my sort of chair and sat down and in deep embarrassment did a little drawing of myself saying hello to uh, to simon and his what I thought was his wife, and Simon, Simon in the speech bubble was saying, that's not my wife. And I sort of used that as a sort of confessional tool. And it made me feel did you better. show him? I did. <laughs> so that's the only comeback. But, but I think, you know, Great. you can also sort of draw things that, that happen to you sort of emotionally. So you can sort of, you know, express yourself in all sorts of ways that, that can be helpful. Uh, and there's a, a, an illustrator friend of mine who um, draws her anxiety as this amazing sort of cowled figure that that, that follows her around in, in pictures. And, it, and, and then she has a dialogue with this imagined figure that is her own anxiety. And in that, you know, there's something wonderfully therapeutic about sort of visualising and then, you know, basically telling telling yourself off in a way saying sort of you know get away from me um you know or, or seeing the funny side um uh, so you can self-dramatize and, and and almost sort of make it therapeutic and i suppose you can always draw yourself doing things that you really shouldn't and you really wouldn't because it's really bad but just you, you can't get in trouble can you I because you're just as well. drawing it yes <laughs> and again if it's your own sketchbook no one need ever see it you know, exactly, keep, keep exactly, that in yeah. the sort of secret sketchbook. You're um, also a political cartoonist, aren't you, for The Observer? I am. So do you find that as much fun as you do creating your own characters? I mean, I would say in the last couple of years, you must have been having a field day <laughs> <It's one of those laughs> compared to things. what it was before. Yes, it's, it's one of those very sad things that the only sort of good thing about the, the times we're living in is that it provides lots and lots of material for a political cartoonist. I'm, I'm never without subject matter. And in some ways, I almost wish that I I was sort of bereft if, if things were great and going well, yeah. you know, nothing to really comment on. Um, and it's been the exact opposite. Um, but I found a little while ago, um, last November to be exact, um, I found myself shouting at the radio. And, and, and the thing about... Um, uh, doing working for the Observer, it's a Sunday uh, newspaper, so I have one day a week where I can sort of get these feelings off my chest and put them into a political cartoon, and, and it gets published, and I feel better. It's a it's a nice feeling to sort of you know shake your fist in a in a sort of political drawing. Um, and last November, I was shouting at the radio, thinking, thinking, I want to draw a cartoon now to express my rage at, at sort of the election result, and I thought I'd wait till Sunday. And I thought, rather than just sort of, you know, shouting at the radio, what I would do is um, keep a sketchbook, and as I listen to the Today programme each day, um, draw a cartoon, you know, that expresses how I feel about the, the day's news. And um, I've called... I, I post these drawings online for exactly the same reason I enjoy doing the Observer cartoons. Is it's a way of sort of releasing some of one's sort of pent up sort of um, emotion about uh, about the times we live in. 
I call it um, my five-year sketchbook uh, because I want to do a drawing for every day of this current parliamentary sort of session between the two elections. Um, and uh, I really enjoy doing that because, again, it, it is a way of sort of you know, railing against people taking eye tests while driving to Barnard Castle and uh, you know, ignoring great waves that are about to crash over them. You know, they, it, we live in, in those sort of times. Is it? Um, I assumed that they would tell you what you they wanted you to draw, not that you would put out your own view. I take it. Well, it's, it's rather, are there ever times when you're when you have to draw something political that you don't agree with because they've no, asked you to? No, and I think that's because I work for the paper the, the, whose political yeah. stance I agree with, and I think that's, yes. that's a great. Um, uh, sort of pleasure to, to be able to do that. Um, I don't think I would do the job if I had to become the sort of mouthpiece for uh, uh, the opposite side. <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't do it. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm right. not criticizing perfectly uh, fine cartoonists who do do that because it is a job, you know, and I, I would never mm. criticize anyone for, for sort of, you know, choo- choosing that route. But for me, I've been lucky. I've been able to work, you know, on a on a left-leaning paper whose views I support and mm. who don't tell you what to do. Um, it's really my job, in a sense, to to connect with the readers um, in a way that a columnist might and, and, and offer mm. my views. And, of course, in this yeah. day and age, now we have sort of comment threads below um, uh, the cartoons that the, and, and every article in the paper has a comment thread so I can read, you know, what people actually think in a way that a few years ago one would get a, a couple of letters uh, every other week by various people who would either praise or or sort of you know criticize you now you have that in you know almost minutes the, as soon as the cartoon is put online um and it's part of my job i think to to read those comments and and to sort of not necessarily take them on board but but to be aware in a sense that that this is the connection that i'm making I'm curious, when you do your political cartoon, uh, and do you have to pitch a few ideas to the paper? Or, and do you just do that in note form, or how do you do well, it? Well, I've learned the hard way. What, what you should never do is give the ed- – the editor is the arbiter. So um, when I say I'm, I'm not told what to do, I always show the editor what I intend to do because, you know, that's part of the editorial process. You know, he decides what goes in the paper. Um, so, of course, you know, I'm, I'm, what I do is at his discretions. But I've learned the hard way not to show an editor um, two different ideas, because what they'll inevitably do is want a little bit of one idea, uh, you know, shoehorned into the other. And then you come up with these terrible sort of mixed metaphors. And I know they don't mean to do that, but it's just the way editors think. So what I do is I try to set out as deliberately as possible what my idea is and then explain it very, very directly to the editor. So I actually tell him what he's looking at. You know, this is a, this is the wave of the coronavirus and it is going to break over the figure of Boris Johnson who is, you know, waving a tattered umbrella marked test, world-class test and trace. And I explain it very, you know, I do a little word picture so he knows exactly what I intend to draw. Um, and and usually, if if there's no sort of you know comeback, I get on with it. Um, I think now they they just they trust me, so I I tend to sort of generally send off an email, tell them what I'm going to do, and then get on with it, uh, which um, 
which is lovely, as I say, very cathartic. So how did you get your first big break? Well, I've been very lucky on different occasions. I think um, I would say my first big break came at art school when Raymond Briggs uh, was was my personal tutor and um, a wonderful publisher called Sebastian Walker had just set up Walker Books um, and uh, he was going around um, paying and recruiting illustrators and writers and paying them huge amounts of money for the time based on his incredible skills as a salesman. You know, he, he was paying authors instead of, you know, 10 guineas, he would offer them sort of 2,000 pounds. And there were a lot of publishers who were outraged by this, you know, and there were a lot of um, authors and illustrators who thought, fantastic, this is wonderful. Um, and, uh, and Sebastian wanted to recruit Raymond uh, to Walker Books, wanted to commission him to do a book. And, and Raymond was intensely loyal to his editor at, uh, at Penguin and wasn't going to go anywhere. But he decided, and this is how generous Raymond is, he decided to um, uh, to lure Sebastian down to uh, the art school um, and then show him students' work. In, you know, in an attempt to sort of get, you know, they, he wasn't going to say yes to anything Sebastian offered him, but he wanted um, his students to to see a real publisher. And so he asked Sebastian down, and Sebastian came down with his editor and his designer, who are two wonderful people, um, David and Amelia. And they came down to meet art students. And the only trouble was that um, everyone was out doing various projects um, uh, when they visited. Uh, and I was the only person in the studio at Brighton Art School um, on the day that Raymond opened the studio door and said, meet my students. And there was just me. Everyone else was out and about doing sort of important things. And so I was like a rabbit caught in headlights. And Sebastian came up and looked over my shoulder and uh, looked at what I was doing, which just happened to be a fairy tale project. And I think to this day, he was wanting to impress Raymond. And he said to me, would you like to do a book? And I almost fell off my chair. And I said, yes, I would love to. And he commissioned me on the spot in front of Raymond uh, to do a book for um, a series they were doing for Sainsbury's, the supermarket. Again, an outlandish idea at the time. And that became my first commission. And I've worked uh, with Walker Books ever since. And that was pure chance, pure luck. Um, Nothing to do with what I was doing, I don't think. And then sort of a few years later, um, I I was um, asked by... uh, um, a newspaper, a very short-lived newspaper called the Sunday Correspondent, um, to do um, a speculative cartoon. They were thinking about running the cartoon in the, in, in the paper. And they were looking around for likely contenders, and so they um, they asked me to do this, uh, to just just a sort of trial. It wasn't going to go in the paper. They just wanted to see what I might do, and so I drew a cartoon, which I still have actually, of uh, um, uh, a. Hong Kong, the, the dragon of, of Chinese communism, you know, dragging away a, a sort of uh, um, citizens of Hong Kong, who knew how pressing that 
would become, but it was back in the day when it, you know, the handover was just being discussed in the sort of, uh, late 80s. And uh, someone obviously misunderstood at the newspaper and accidentally put the cartoon in the paper. And so I got a phone call from the editor the, the, the next day saying, um, I'm sorry, we, we accidentally published the cartoon that we asked you to do as a sample. Um, so um, I think we better carry on. Could you do? Can you do it? <laughs> so that became my first gig as a political cartoonist. And again, just it was it was someone's mistake. Um, and I've I worked as a political cartoonist ever since. So I'm not quite sure how that came about. But uh, it's these little happy accidents, I think, that can happen. But I would say to anyone, sort of, in, you know, in a creative sense, is 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 not to wait for that. Not not to you know always be be sort of open to it, but to get on with your own sort of you know on your own journey don't don't sort of not set out because someone is 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 sort of uh, uh not commissioning you but but sort of pick up a book for instance that you enjoy open up the pages if it doesn't have illustrations and with many many books you will notice they have lovely margins and no illustrations in them if it's a book you enjoy provide your own illustrations draw in your copy of of that uh, of that book and who knows uh a passing editor might notice and commission you. Tell us about being children's laureate, because you used well, to be that, didn't you? I did. I did. 2015 to 2017. Um, it uh, it was one of the... It, it, I, I had a tremendously enjoyable time. I'm, I'm slightly ashamed to say that, because maybe one's not meant to enjoy these things, but I really did. Um and very early on, what I decided to do is is, is keep a little visual journal, uh, journal of what I was doing because I wanted you know people to sort of see what I was doing as I went around and did various things. And um, so I started to do a little drawing, which turned into this book, Travels with My Sketchbook, which is very much based on those two years. And I did a little drawing each day of what I might get up to. And, and so... I did various things, um, visited a lot of schools, um, uh, found myself in some lovely, unusual places, talking to um, the actor Tom Hiddleston at the Globe Theatre in a, in, in a little balcony, um, uh, saying, you know, you know, Tom, I think the next James Bond should be a middle-aged cartoonist. He laughed. Um, and uh, very, you know, just being in places and doing, and I remember sort of drawing um, live to uh, uh, jo- jo- Joanne McGregor, the wonderful pianist, playing um, uh, playing Bach while I drew pictures in front of a sort of audience at, at the Hay Festival, and that was great fun. Um, and and doing a number of sort of visits to to sort of overseas to 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 various sort of other countries as children's laureate, which was wonderful as well. Um, towards the end of my time, um, the organisers of the UK Children's Laureate um, uh, program actually sort of got in touch and said, "Well, we've got the sort of the the, the data back from your your time. It's drawing to an end." They said, um, "You've." In the two years, you've done um, 400 events, you know, a day, 400 days of events. And I remember thinking, why on earth 
didn't you tell me this before? Because then I could have taken it easy. I kept thinking I wasn't doing enough. Um, and they were being very quiet about it because they felt a little bit sort of, you know, ashamed that I wasn't working hard enough. Um, turns out that I was sort of getting everywhere, you know, going everywhere. And I could have taken more time off. But it was so enjoyable. And I'm so glad I did it. Um, and I met so many wonderful people. And I think fundamentally it allowed me to do something that I, I really care about very deeply, which is to be an advocate for public libraries and school libraries and um, and just being given a platform to talk about, you know, the importance of libraries uh, was a great privilege. And um, and it's something I think that that is more necessary now than ever. Um, you know, the, the, the role of school libraries in, in education, I think, is incredibly underappreciated. And if something's underappreciated, it gets under-resourced. And if it's under-resourced, it gets sort of, you know, uh, denigrated as, as not working properly. And then it gets abolished. And once schools lose a school library service or a, a, a book, a, a classroom dedicated to books, um, something very, very valuable at the heart of a school is lost. Um, so I was able to talk about that a lot as, as children's laureate. Speaking of libraries, I mean, I've always been one that loves a book that I can hold and I can smell, you know, it's mm. just that feeling of having a book. And I love having books on an actual shelf in my house. Yes. That's what I like. And for a long time, because my husband's an avid reader, he loves reading. And I sit up in my bed with my glasses on reading my book and I had to switch the light on. And then he said, you really need to get a Kindle. And I said, I really don't want a Kindle. I don't want a Kindle because I love the feeling of a book. But he actually did buy me a Kindle for my birthday and it is great. I do yeah. love it and I'm glad he got it for me. But what do you think Kindle, what do you think of a Kindle, first of all? And what do you think Kindles, ha, you know, have, what effect do you think they've had on that being in touch with an actual real book? Well, I think you might have touched on on exactly that with, with, with what you just said, because I think Kindles are these remarkable things that can hold a library's worth of of, of books within mm. this device and that that's a thrilling thing um to be able to just sort of you know have access to carry your library around it you know in your pocket is a wonderful thing but um i think what kindles have really done is they've been very kindle like um they aren't books and so you have at one point you you have this device where you can access lots of these wonderful things called books and i think that gives you a thirst for the actual book you know, the, 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 so you you can encounter a, a, a book for the first time on a Kindle, and if you're like me, um, you'll want to go and buy the real book because you want to oh. hold that book. It's a it's a it's an object. So, I think the age of the Kindle has sort of meant the resurgence of the age of the beautiful book, where you know a book in all its glory. You know, old tatty paperbacks. I love them dearly, but these days you can buy wonderful well-produced, beautifully designed, gorgeous-looking books, because they have to be in order to be profitable, yeah. you know. And, and as an illustrator, I think I can think of nothing better. Um, I've just done my version of Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, uh, 320 pages with lots and lots of colour and a lovely yellow um, bookmark and, and illustrations on every page. It's a great big brick of a book. Um, I was rather shocked when uh, um, my copies were sent to me because the package weighed a ton. 
but it's very covetable as as an object. And I think we're surrounded now by just beautifully illustrated, produced books everywhere. And we do now, I think, live in the age of the beautiful book. And uh, yeah. you know, we books have never been more important to us than than in this era where we're all locked down and and we need books more than ever. I just want to skip back to when you said about making your own opportunities and try drawing in the blank spaces of books. Um, And you told a story once, I wonder if you could repeat it here, about when Sarah Crossan gave you a book about conjoined twins. That's right, yes. So you made your own opportunity, didn't you, there? Certainly, um, because Sarah is just the most amazing poet um, and writes this wonderful form of, of free verse um, uh, that, that's sort of novelistic. So, so her poems are novel length in a way um, and tell fantastic stories um, in this very dynamic form where, of, of sort of free verse where, where the chapters are short, uh, sometimes no more than a page, um, but they condense moments and thoughts beautifully. Um, and uh, if, if one hasn't sort of you know read Sarah Cross, I would urge everyone to because she she is a sort of um, um, really wonderful uh, um, sort of exponent of that form. Um, we were at the um, uh, the Carnegie uh, Greenaway um, Awards, and Sarah won the Carnegie, and I I won the Greenaway. So we were sort of you know thrown together as it were, and we were try- she. Um, very generously gave me a copy of her book and said, you know, this this is a book you've described it, um, you know, a, a book about sort of conjoined twins and, uh, you know, teenage girls sort of growing up with this extraordinary condition. And I graciously accepted the book thinking this is the sort of book that, you know, it's just not for me. It's not, I'm, I'm not the intended readership, but, but, but I better smile sweetly and and take the book. And so I did, and I thanked Sarah very much for it. And uh, then we travelled up to Manchester to to do a sort of programme together. And I had the book with me and I just started to read it. And I was completely overwhelmed by it. It was just wonderful, beautifully done. And I started to notice these blank spaces because it's a written in free verse. There are lots and lots of sort of facing pages and and, and beautifully beautiful use of, of, of space. And I started to draw in the margins you know because the margins were big and copious and uh, and couldn't stop it was just lovely and it, it sort of I drew round the words in a sense so there could be a sort of half a face that would emerge from a uh, a sort of body of type and um, I really enjoyed it and, and, and loved the whole process and I, I posted a few pages up and Sarah was very sort of gracious and you know allowed me you know gave me permission to do this and so I've, I've continued to draw in books ever since. Um, uh, and, and that's led me towards drawing, uh, illustrating poetry uh, for the same reason. You know, p- poems have got, you know, collections of poems have got wonderful spaces for pictures. And I would urge any illustrator who's, who's interested in that sort of thing to, to find uh, a poetry collection and use it as their canvas and draw on, on, a, on the copy of the book. Um, because it's a way, just as drawing from life is, it's a way of thinking about the words and thinking about how you might uh, enhance and embody the words, um, you know, on on the page in real time. Um, and it's a great exercise, and it's, a, it's it's lovely to do that. It's sort of mindful reading and drawing. 
And didn't you get a call from a publisher inviting you to illustrate it after that? Yes, I did. And unfortunately, we couldn't make it work. Oh, a shame. Uh, I know. Um, I still have that copy. Um, uh, we, we were in talks, but it subsequently, the same thing happened with Francis Harding. Um, and luckily, Francis and I are at the same publisher. So um, so it was I was able to illustrate um, Francis's book in real time and post-ups and drawings of it for Francis. And it just so happened her editor saw it and did phone me and said, I hear you would like to illustrate Francis's book. And I said, how did you know? She said, I've seen it on Instagram. And so, uh, <laughs> so that led to a, a commission to illustrate um, the lie tree. Um, which was a wonderful thing and, and an utterly unnecessary book in some ways because Francis's book had won uh, the Costa Prize and was doing extremely well and was coming out in, in paperbacks. You didn't need a hardback with pictures in it, but it just sort of, it was a, a, a something that started for me as a, a, an enjoyable thing, turned into a, an actual printed book. So you can you can pick up the illustrated Francis Harding if you would like. Um, I went on to do the same with Neverwhere um, with with Neil Gaiman, um, and uh, I hadn't read the book before. This Neil said Neverwhere's never been illustrated. Would you like to illustrate it? And I hadn't read it, uh, but I said yes because Neil's Neil. And the publisher said, um, oh, if you must, um, but just, you know, maybe do five illustrations. We'll just space them through the text. I said, yes, okay. And I went away with the uh, manuscript of the, the, the typeset, the whole thing, and I couldn't resist. I ended up illustrating almost every page of Neverwhere. And the designer gave me such a look when I came in with this big sheaf of paper saying, I'm afraid I rather, this rather ran away with me. Um, but he was very good, and he made it work, and he, he made sure that all the pictures stayed in, in the book. So it's a, a very overly illustrated version of Neverwhere, should you want to see it. Well, if anyone wants to see um, you actually in action, because I follow you on Instagram, and you do a lot of live drawing, and you, you do a lot of videos of yourself drawing, and I'm sure everybody, including myself, probably looks at you drawing away and thinks, what is that magic pencil he has in his uh, hand? <laughs> yeah. That's such a great um, question. Ask any illustrator about a question about materials. and we, we go on forever. You know, we can tell you about types of paper we prefer and particular pens, not that pen. It's got to be this pen. Um, the pencils mm. I, I enjoy. And, and I, I would just make it clear that um, it's, I never post up pictures of, of me drawing in that sense. It's only my hand. You know, my hand, mm. and, and it's not a very attractive hand, um, I've got to say. But, <laughs> but the pencils are the thing, aren't they? And um, the pencils I use are Conte pastel pencils, um, and they um, are available in all good um, uh, art materials shops. Um, and I like, um, uh, it's an H is, is the sort of, um, they, they, you can get a 2B Conte pencil pencil, but they're too crumbly, whereas the H is just sort of hard enough to, to be able to be sharpened into a really um, uh, satisfying point. And I use a scalpel um, and a sharp blade to sharpen my pencils, which again is a very enjoyable um, act. And um, what I like about uh, past the Conte pastel pencil is they glide across paper very nicely. So you can draw quickly uh, with them in, in quite a satisfying way. Um, and also you can be as sort of smudgy or as definite as you like. 
Um, and again, that's that frees you up. We're back to the, the notion of, you know, not worrying too much as you draw about how you're drawing. And and um, I've used them often when I'm drawing sort of in front of an audience. So I've tended to um, do events where I set up a document camera and I've been lucky enough to work with some musicians um, in various various um, venues where I, I draw while the musicians play. Um, and again, drawing to music is a very enjoyable thing um, because it's meditative and it's relaxing and it's quite fun to watch. I love seeing other artists draw as, as well. And Instagram is a lovely place where you can do that, you know, see little videos of hands moving across paper, creating things. Um, and uh, and particularly with lockdown now, I've, I've just done a series of events because so many books are coming out this month and next month. Um, authors are out and about, except we can't be out and about. So we're all sitting in our computers um, talking to people. Mm. Um, so I've just done some virtual school visits today, which have been lovely. And it's heartwarming to see kids in classrooms, you know, on on, on one sort of Zoom screen, sort of waving back at you, uh, but also heartrending as well, because you're at a distance. Uh, you're not going, and after two years of Children's Laureate, I've visited so many schools and it made me very nostalgic to to, to see kids back in school. So let's talk about the books then you've you've just bought out. Is there three? Is that right? It's worse than that, I'm Tell afraid. Us. There there are in oh. fact, uh, six books. Six. I know it's ridiculous, but this is unfortunately the times we live in. Um, I've had a lot of time during lockdown um, to, to work on this, <laughs> and I've had a lot. Tell of us time. about those. Tell us about those books and and where people can get them if they want them. There's the Neil Neil Gaiman's uh, new picture book. Uh, called Pirate Stew, uh, which is a wonderful verse um, text um, about pirate babysitters. Uh, really good fun. Um, uh, big pirate crew, um, as, as, as in, in the book that I've sort of uh, had a lot of fun illustrating. Um, uh, then there is my uh, edition of Alice. Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, uh, 320 pages of it, um, big heavy book, um, mm. uh, really enjoyable project to do, um, but also quite um, daunting in some senses because John Tenniel, who illustrated the original Alice, not only was published by my publisher, Macmillan, um, but his work I've loved ever since I can remember. Um, so the idea of my pictures instead of uh, John Tenniel's is, to me, is a, a terrible thing. Um, at the same time, um, it was wonderful to encounter Lewis Carroll's text, uh, in a sense, as an illustrator and, and, and to sort of reinterpret that. Um, so I've had a lot of fun with that, particularly with the uh, the Mad Hatter. Uh, some people would think I might have gone too far, but but you'll have to sort of look at the book and decide for yourself. Um, my collection of poetry, a poetry anthology called Poems to Save the World With, um, chosen and illustrated by, by me. Um, and that is another thing I love, which is illustrating poetry. And, and what I tend to do when I do an anthology like that, I get to choose my favourite poems and then have them sort of designed on on the paper I intend to use, you know, typeset on the paper, and then I draw directly onto the uh, the, the pages, um, uh, and that goes off to the printers to be 
to be printed. So again, it's a very instinctive and, and direct response. Um, I'm not a poet. I'm, I'm an illustrator, but I do occasionally write poems when, when moved to. Um, and because I, I compile it, I, I get to um, put my own poems in, which is a bit shocking, but, but I've enjoyed sharing, you know, the pages with, with Shakespeare and Keats and some of my absolute heroes. Uh, and I wrote two poems, one for my son and my eldest son and one for my younger son uh, during lockdown. And they are poems about lockdown. Um, and then I was working on a wonderful book last year that um, had, has taken a while to, to be sort of published. And it's, a again, another um, poetry collection, but it's by Michael Rosen, um, who was uh, a former children's laureate and um, a poet whose work I've always loved and his poetry for children is just wonderful. And I did a book called The Great Big Cuddle a few years ago, um, which are sort of nursery rhymes that, that Michael wrote for the very young. And they, they're wonderfully inventive, the way they play with language. And I, um, I was asked to do uh, uh, another anthology with, with Michael. It was a wonderful thing um, called Honey for Me, Honey for You. And that's, that's what's com coming out um, this month. And of course, we couldn't know that, that, that Michael would have his uh, brush with um, the coronavirus and, and almost, you know, a, a, a brush with death. Um, and all through lockdown, my thoughts were with Michael very much, you know, sort of wondering how he was getting on and, and not, you know, sort of following the, the reports as we went. And, and thankfully, he's on the road to recovery. Mm. Um, and... Uh, we will be doing a book together um, about his recovery, which I'm very pleased to to sort of be part of. Um, so there's that. I'm not sure how where we've got up to. Maybe that's the fourth one. Um, and then there's um, a debut novel by um, a writer called Francesca Gibbons, uh, and it's called A Clock of Stars, and it's the first of a trilogy. And again, that's um, that's something I illustrated almost as lockdown was upon us, you know, um, and it's coming out uh, this, mm. uh, I think, the beginning of October. And again, really lovely to sort of be working, you know, with uh, a debut writer uh, who has just, it's wonderful fantasy fiction. It's, it's, it's a big chapter book that kids will really sort of get into and, and explore this world. Um, and I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed illustrating it. So, so that's quite a, you know, it's a nice range for me, just from sort of very young poetry through to classic poetry, through to Neil Gaiman's fantastic um, sort of uproarious uh, picture book and Francesca's new book coming out. So, uh, so I've had sort of just the most amazing time doing all this, but unfortunately all these books are coming out together, which is not ideal. So it will be absolutely <laughs> sick to death of me by the end of this. So I was going to ask what your plans were for the future, but I'm guessing you're promoting all the books, are you? At the moment, virtually, yes. Yes, sort of um, talking to computer screens um, and, and uh, longing for the day, I think, when one can sort of get out and about and start to, uh, uh, you know, one of the things I, I was doing before lockdown was a lovely um, uh, sort of regular, once a month I would go to the Toy Museum in Brighton and draw um, on, on screen, you know, with, with my visualizer, um, while the um, the folk club uh, at the toy museum, sort of the, the, the musicians played. Um, and so I, I've done a number of those events, which were just 
lovely and I've done that for the last few years. Well, of course, that as a venue is a tiny, exquisite little venue, but um, but completely unsuitable for the current restrictions. Um, and of course, the people suffering hugely during this, this sort of lockdown are musicians playing live music. Um, because it's been shut down, as are people who work in the theatre as well. It's 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 a, been an art form that's just sort of almost impossible to uh, to to replicate. And I know a lot of very creative people who are doing their best to 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 do different things and try to to sort of get their work out there. And one of the things we can do is is do that virtually. So we we had a little virtual folk festival um, in uh, in the midst of lockdown where I drew while bands played and on, on a sort of Zoom style format. And again, that was lovely, but it's just not the same without a live audience. No, absolutely. I think one of the things about lockdown, though, that did happen is some people that would never have um, had the time to be creative did get the time to to be creative. And we've had a lot of more people um, contacting us and saying, you know, oh, you know, yes. I've, I've never really had the time I've got now. And now I really want to learn to draw. And it's it's sort of, there's a little think, silver lining there for some people, isn't there? But it's very difficult. It is very difficult. But but I think there will, I think, be um, an upsurge, I think, of, of creativity as a response to, to difficult times. Um, yeah. And I, I love the sort of the, the the Brecht quote about sort of you know in dark times there'll be singing and what will the singing mm. be about? It'll be about the dark times, and I think that's what we'll see and are, we are seeing you know an upsurge of people's creative responses to, to the things going on around around them, whether it's the sort of coronavirus, whether it's the sort of current sort of political system, and or whether it's actually wider than that and it's about sort of the resources you know the finite resources we have in the natural world and what what's happening to them um and they all you know sort of cry out for creative responses and to be recorded or, or commented on creatively um and so it's lovely to see that happening um and we also live in a world where where sort of things can be broadcast. So I've loved the the, the growth of of podcasts just mm. You know, like like this one that that enables communication, enables you know one to listen to to other voices in in other places, uh, and connects us. Um, and I think that's one of the great sort of um, sort of creative responses to the times we're living in, when we uh, we we can connect um, through the spoken word and through you know our visual responses to things through art and creativity. Thank goodness for the internet. <laughs> Can you imagine? Exactly. Yeah. It does yeah. give us that, that way of sort of at least still being able to connect, which is great. But where can people find out more about you and obviously all the books you mentioned? Um, well, uh, certainly uh, you can you can find me um, on social media. So I'm, I'm on Instagram, Chris underscore Riddell uh, on Instagram. Um, I also have a, a Facebook page um, uh, for a slightly different demographic, but it's it's a, a public Facebook page. So you can find me. You can search and find find me there. Um, uh, on both platforms, I, I I post up my daily political drawing, um, my five-year sketchbook, I call it, um, as well as live drawing and, and various other things. Um, and then um, 
inevitably um, I'm on Twitter, um, but that tends to be just what I've been doing on Instagram or, or Facebook. So that, that goes into my Twitter feed. Um, I'm not terribly good at hashtags because I'm of that generation. I, I still struggle with the, with, uh, you know, the, the, the rules of, the, of doing it. But the only rule I think I, I have discovered when it comes to, to sort of certainly social media is that um, it, for me, I, I treat it as a, a notice board, you know, very much in the way that one might pass a sort of, um, you know, the village hall or, or, or in the school corridor, you know, the notice board on which things are pinned. And I enjoy, you know, social media in that sense where you can see sort of things that people are doing uh, much more than using it as a, a, a debating platform. Oh, uh, yeah, definitely. You know, I, I, I'm not terribly keen on sort of angry shouting voices and, and you know, raised fists. I think there are much better ways to express yourself. And I think also civility. I think, I think there is a sort of, uh, I think, a, a wonderful way to conduct yourself on social media where you are sort of generous and kind, but that doesn't mean you are necessarily um, uh, sort of, you know, permissive. You can actually say what you, you mean, but you can do it with courtesy, I think, or you can do it artistically. Um, so some of the things I've enjoyed immensely are um, some of the parodies you can you can see on social media where um, you know politicians are, are sort of um, you know uh, uh, are sort of lip synced to and you know humorously lampooned. Um, there's, a, there's a lovely um, uh, stream that I tend to sort of look at called "The Man in the Back Room," where where this wonderful actor sort of uh, pretends to be, um, you know, sort of uh, a backroom advisor to various politicians. And he sort of asks, you know, tells Donald Trump not to say, you know, not to mention bleach. And we have a clip of Donald mentioning bleach. Um, yeah. I think those sort of creative responses to things are wonderful and very, very funny. Um, and, uh, and I think that, that that's the sort of social media I enjoy. I do. And I think as well, especially in times like this, you know, they say laughter is the best medicine, don't they? And it, it does wonders for your mental health. So I think the more people can be humorous and create humorous um, things for social media, it gives us something else to look at, doesn't it? It gives us something else other than the normal, what you see every day, people just whining about what's going on, people finding ways of lightening the mood a bit. And I think it's so important and you do it so well. Well, we, we, that's what we, I think we would all want, you know, I, I often think that, that the, um, the best measure of, of your social media presence is, would you say that directly to someone? Um, and if you wouldn't, because it's cruel, or it's demeaning, or it, 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 it would be offensive, then don't mm. say it, you know, and mm. I think that's, that's a good rule of thumb. So even though I might be critical of Boris Johnson, um, anything I say about Boris, I'd be very happy to say directly to him, you know, in, mm. in as good <laughs> way as I could manage. You know, um, so I think you know, as a rule of thumb, just hand him a drawing. Just hand exactly. him a drawing. <laughs> oh yes, I, I would. I think I really should do a picture book because <laughs> then you would. I, I always remember being at the Cheltenham Festival. Uh, reading uh, one of my picture books to an audience and looking down and seeing um, sitting cross-legged on the floor with his daughter, you know, his young daughter, was Michael Gove. And so my, as I read my story, it became apparent what I was actually reading was a um, satire on the Tory government. 
I didn't realize it at the time, but just Michael Gove being there enabled me to, <laughs> to actually sort of <laughs> introduce the subtext. Um, so, uh, so yes, I think a, a picture book for um, the uh, Boris Jr. would be uh, would be maybe the next thing I might do. Num- book number seven. No, 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 no. I think oh, you need goodness. to do. Yes. I think you need to do the other one first for creatives. I think you need to do that one. <laughs> maybe if we you do have I a should. mini a mini lockdown in October, they're talking about. Perhaps you. That, perhaps that. That's what you should do. <laughs> oh my goodness! Yes. Uh, well, Please, we, special, let- special. You have two buyers already. Well, I, I let's, <laughs> it's worth doing. we will sort of cross our fingers and, and, and hope that, that we won't be locked down in quite that yes, way. Um, absolutely. But if we are, that's a good thought. <laughs> it's been absolutely so fun to talk to you, Chris. And, and as I said when before we hit record, we've been wanting to talk to you for so long and you haven't disappointed. You've been absolutely fantastic. So we really do appreciate the time you've taken to talk to us today. It's been my pleasure. Oh, that's wonderful. And um, hopefully we will catch up and hopefully, maybe, we might even catch up in the flesh at one point because, as I say, I'm a regular visitor of Brighton, so um, our paths may well cross one day. (laughs) That would be great. Yes, all right, then we'll take care um, and we will chat again hopefully one day. Thank you. Bye. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode and if you did, perhaps you'd like to share it and leave a review for us on iTunes. Back soon.